Hey, good afternoon, and welcome to Vintage Orange here on KUCI 88.9 FM. I am Ellen Bell, and thank you for tuning in today. Um, I'm happy to be here uh, on another afternoon where we talk about Orange County history, and uh, I'm not alone in the studio today. I actually have uh, a friend here with me. Uh, Jim Washburn is here to check out things. Um, We're going to be talking about um, Orange County history in terms of... um, uh, music. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there we go, Jim. Help me, help me, help me. So we're going to be talking about music, and, and Orange County is uh, home to a lot of really great history as far as um, music goes. Let's yeah. start there up in the north county of Fullerton. And uh, a lot of people don't realize that Fullerton is really the home not only of oranges and things like that that came through Fullerton, but it's it was where a lot of really wonderful music came uh happened and because of one guy and you know a lot about this guy leo fender tell me the story of him okay leo fender um and to start with this is uh basically kind of congruent our little talk here today with an exhibit that's going to open on the 12th at the fullerton museum center uh, where they've had a leo fender gallery there for the last 10 years celebrating him and they have a brand new exhibit opening then it kind of goes through his whole life and kind of pinpoints some of his inventions and in short he's the father of the modern electric guitar if you like electric guitar he's your guy <laughs> if you don't like it find his grave and, and Blame him. do whatever but uh he was kind of ground zero for a lot of things that revolutionized the sound of music, the ability of people to create that music and all that stuff. With Fender guitars, you've most likely heard of the Telecaster, the Stratocaster, and all that stuff. Uh, Fender started in Fullerton. He was born on the outskirts of Fullerton and had kind of an unlikely story for a guy that wound up being so <coughs> equated with the electric instrument. Well, tell me about that story. What was well, what was Fullerton even like back then when Leo Fender was born? Yeah. Um, yeah. You said in the outs- it was it farmland agriculture. It, it was a town. It. There was a lot of farmland. You know, all the, there was like a citrus packing business was mm-hmm. pretty big there. Uh, there were beet farms in the county. Just it was largely agrarian and mm-hmm. not a ton else going on there at the time. He was actually born um, in a house that a didn't have electricity yet. <laughs> Uh, it being on the outskirts at that point, only like the downtown areas of Fullerton and Anaheim, and he was born between those two towns. Mm-hmm. The downtown areas were lit up, but people on the outskirts were still largely relying on um, kerosene lanterns to keep the darkness away at night. And so he was born both in a home that didn't have electricity, and also it wasn't exactly a home. He was born in a barn. <laughs> His parents were farmers, and they had bought this property a year or two earlier than on what's now La Palma Avenue. And they had um, could afford a barn before they could afford a house. Oh so basically, they just stacked up a bunch of hay in the middle of the barn, and the farm animals lived on one side, and the family lived on the other until they could afford the house. And oh, my gosh. That's what he was born into, and he you know, grew up doing farming sort of things as a kid and evidently didn't love them over much to stick with it. Uh, he went to Orange Thorpe School in Fullerton and then uh, Fullerton Union High School. And it was as a teenager he became very interested in radio electronics, which was sort of the new thing. And he was born in 1909. Mm-hmm. So the advent of radio and it becoming a national you know, thing for everybody was still pretty well at his infancy when he was a young fellow. He had an uncle that was really into, into radios and electronics who just gave him some of his old junk parts. And that was enough to start him going before long. He was repairing his schoolmates' radios and things like that. 
and hadn't necessarily figured out how to make a living out of that. He studied um, accounting in junior college in Fullerton and wound up becoming an accountant for years. Didn't love that. Um, moved back to Fullerton with a, with a new wife and um, uh, basically took out a loan on his car, got 600 bucks, and used that to start a radio repair shop in Fullerton. Mm-hmm. And he loved country music. That's what he grew up loving. Orange County was a rural area, so country was pretty popular here. And um, a lot of local musicians began taking their errant steel guitars, which was the kind of before people were making proper electric guitars, the steel guitar, in which you'd play with a sliding steel bar that started Hawaiian music, then was mm-hmm. adopted by country, was sort of the big thing. And they'd take their instruments and amplifiers to him to repair, and he was pretty disgusted by what he was having to repair and figured he could start making his own. Uh, teamed up with a guy named Doc Kaufman, who was another inventor, Minick sort of thing. They had a short-lived partnership and started manufacturing steel guitars and amplifiers. This was in around 19, late 30s. And was this the, the, the studio or the, the radio shop that's on Harbor Boulevard that... Um, yeah would be initially it was originally called south spadra okay and then it changed its name to harbor boulevard and i i hope they put a plaque on it or something now and fender's original actually proper factory was a block or two from there and i think it got torn down to make way for a new train station or something okay so that doesn't exist right now yeah okay so um so they uh he he really wasn't coming at this as somebody who wanted to be like involved in the music business at all that was not his aim well in a sense you know he he liked musicians liked hanging out with them liked going to hear music and i'm sure like most people liked being liked by the people he liked yeah um and liked to be of utility to them and that was a whole big part of his ethos was coming up with stuff that would make musicians lives better mm-hmm. and all that stuff um the guitar was always kind of like the poor instrument in a band traditionally and there was a long history of just people trying to come up with a louder guitar before they finally started amplifying it. Uh, but up to that point, when he came along, most what were considered electric guitars were just an acoustic guitar that someone had put a, a pickup on, which was this electromagnetic device that would sense the vibration of a string and turn it into a signal yeah. that could be read by an amplifier. Uh, they would just put them on an acoustic instrument, and there were like a lot of inherent problems in that. They would howl, they would feed back, they just wasn't initially that great of a design. And he started thinking, well, why not make something that has this great sustaining singing, what he called a shower of brilliance that that. that an electric steel guitar made. (laughs) And it wasn't a huge leap of invention to say, well, because steel guitars were already solid-bodied instruments to make just a solid-bodied normal guitar. And some other companies had preceded him doing that, Mm -hmm. but either in ones or twos in a kind of a custom shop thing or with no great success. And he's the guy that democratized it by figuring out ways to make great, durable, affordable instruments you could mass-produce that would be of service to musicians. Um, And that's what he came up with. Um, in 1950, he introduced the uh, Telecaster guitar, which was the first mass-produced successful electric guitar that turned things around. Four years later, followed that up with the Stratocaster, which looked nothing like a guitar in history had ever looked like. It was a sculpted thing that, you know, that looked again just unlike any guitar. And I asked him once decades ago what you know if, if he was trying to just 
assault the world with some, <laughs> some this radically new thing. And he just said, no, it looked like that because he was trying to solve a number of problems in a single instrument in terms of accessibility to all the frets of the instrument, a lot right. of choices for a musician, a better vibrato unit on it. And also in general, uh, uh, to use a term that didn't exist at the time, just the ergonomics of the instrument so it would sit more comfortably on a musician to be able to play all night. And there were even considerations as to if the musician got in a bar fight and had to use his guitar, <laughs> who would come out the winner? Seriously? <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, the vendors were kind of famous for surviving bar fights, and the, this served musicians in oh good stead for a long time. Pete Townsend, who became with the Who, became famous for smashing instruments a decade or two later, said, you really had to go to town to break a fender. <laughs> And so he'd smash him, and by the next show, he'd probably have it soldered and taped back together enough to make it through another show. That's, the, I mean, the, the cool thing about Leo Fender, and if you go on and you Google <laughs> images and you see Leo <laughs> Fender and you learn anything or you go to the museum, as I <laughs> encourage everybody to do and learn about him, I mean, he was not a hip guy. I mean, you look at a picture of him and yep. you'd go, this looked kind of like, you know, an, <laughs> an, a nerdy um, radio repairman guy. And yet he was associated and his instruments are associated with the coolest of the cool in the rock industry and, and mm-hmm. artists like Eric Clapton and Jimi Hendrix and mm-hmm. um, you know they it, it's it's kind of like a disconnect between mm-hmm. good old Leo Fender from Fullerton mm-hmm. and I love that though because it was his innovation and his um, he was about like you said making something that was practical that would serve musicians mm-hmm. well and and it, it ended up being this wonderfully you know, a, a source of such a wonderful creative energy that we've yeah. all enjoyed and put and him so, in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, and so much of that was aimed at, at local musicians that he knew. He just knew these guys, knew their troubles, yeah. tried to come up with better solutions for them. And one of the things also, a huge milestone he did in 1951 was the invention of the electric bass, the precision bass, the first, again, commercially viable electric bass that was out there. Previous to that, the big stand-up basses that you'd see in orchestras and jazz bands, Mm -hmm. that was the only thing people had. They were really difficult to amplify. They were impossible to travel around with. A lot of touring bands would have to strap them to the top of their car and hope it made it to the gig, all that stuff. And he came up with something that was a little bigger than a guitar and served the function. It was called precision bass because unlike the you know members of the violin family which the stand-up bass was where you just have to kind of make a great educated guess as to where the note is on the neck mm-hmm. he put frets in so you could precisely play the note that you wanted to and he also made it that way because he had guitarists in mind he knew it was really hard for musicians to make a living playing music so he thought if there was an instrument a guitarist could play where he could show up for a gig and play bass instead that that musician might get twice as many gigs so and he put food in, on the table. He actually invented an instrument. I mean, he created this yeah. instrument that didn't exist before, and yeah. he, he couldn't play it, right? He wasn't Yeah, yeah he guitarist. wasn't a musician, but he, <laughs> he hired musicians, and he had musician friends, and he had great advice, and also just an incredible inventored sense for, for what was needed, what would get the job done. And a lot of what he did wasn't even just designing the instruments, but also the machinery and the processes for making the instruments which is half the battle, is like coming up with a way that you can consistently make these things that weren't going to just fall apart on people out on the road. Yeah, it's it's it's. I think that the idea of creativity and practicality, you know, comes mm-hmm. together with him, and and uh, it's just a wonderful American story of of innovation. Yeah, it had a huge effect on 
on the music, too, along with just enabling music that he'd never imagined. You mentioned Jimi Hendrix earlier. Mm-hmm. You know, Leo designed the Stratocaster gun with country musicians in mind, yet over-designed it to the point that, you know, 15 years later, a guy like Jimi Hendrix could take it and make it sound like he was exploding the cosmos with it, <laughs> you know, with the vibrato arm on it and the other things he could do with the thing. And they're still, you know, the instruments Leo designed are still so much the standards in the music industry now for rock and roll and all these other styles of music. And also democratized music quite a bit. Where, you know, previously largely unheard voices, whether you're a Tex-Mex band on the border or inner city rhythm and blues band or whatever, you could get three or four guys with amplified Fender instruments and make it as much racket as a big band could. You could fill a dance floor with the stuff. You could be heard blocks away. And again, this helped guys that couldn't necessarily afford a a whole orchestra to find a viable means of expression that would reach people. And and Mm -hmm. do you think that with the guitars, the fact that there were these guitars that could make these noises kind of influenced the styles of music that became popular because that's what people could play, like the rockabilly stuff and and, Mm -hmm. and all of that, because it could be heard and that kind of a a high, Mm -hmm. um, the the sound, the very distinguished Mm -hmm. sound of a Fender uh, yeah. Telecaster. Yeah, and a lot of it was also the, from the school of unintended consequences, <laughs> uh, where these amps, when you turn them up enough, because Leo also made amplifiers and other devices, you turn them up enough and they start to distort right. in ways that weren't originally imagined. And blues musicians and rock players came to really love that distortion and the and the goofy things you could do that hadn't been considered, like, you know, just feeding back a note forever and things like that. Those were things people were, they were probably trying to avoid when designing the things, yet you know, help facilitate, you know, adventurous new sounds out there. And Leo never stopped inventing. That's part of what's focused, they focus on in the the new gallery exhibit up there on Leo, where they focus on his whole life largely. And he sold Fender to CBS Corporation in in the mid-1960s. But And he stayed on with them as a consultant for a mm-hmm. few years and then went on to other com- companies. One was Music Man, then this final company was at, was at GNL. The day before he died, and I wish I could remember the date, but it's roughly late 80s, early 90s, the day before he died, he was still at his workbench, you know, designing a new instrument. I've heard GNL. that they've left his, at GNL, they left his office is still the way he left it. Like, they yeah. haven't changed it. It's yeah. just still his workbench and his uh-huh. design area is, is yeah. like, is Yeah, and, and one of the way. neat things about the exhibit in Fullerton is uh, GNL is loaning that workbench <gasps> and all really? the sundry junk uh, there so you can actually see you know, just how well a cluttered mind and a cluttered <laughs> workplace could, could produce things. It is such a, a wonderful thing. I'm looking forward to going back and seeing this new exhibit that starts. And you, you know, helped to create that exhibit. You wrote a lot of the text uh, for yeah, it. Yeah, I wrote the, the, the wall text for it, just sort of telling people what's what. Um, the exhibit, the, the new exhibit is the brainchild of the museum's relatively new curator, Kelly Chidester, who had pretty big shoes to fill. The, her predecessor as curator at the museum is a fellow named Richard Smith, who, along with being a really good museum curator, was also like the world's reigning expert on all things Fender. He used to work with Leo Fender. He wrote what's largely regarded as the finest book on Fender guitars, and he retired a while ago. So Kelly had a pretty big job to fill there, and I think did a great job at it. Well, I, I can't wait to see it, and I encourage everybody. It's, it opens up uh, in the 12th? On the another? 12th, yeah, concurrent with another exhibit in like in the main museum, which incidentally the OC Weekly readers voted the best art museum in Orange County. Well, I think. And, yeah, and that's something on, I guess, Prohibition era in Orange County. Very nice. Which I'm looking forward to seeing. They're having like a some sort of gala opening on the 12th, and then 
Um, I don't know how long the Prohibition exhibit runs, but the Fender Gallery in its, in its current form, as she's done it, should be there, I think, for three or four years. Well, I, I, I can't wait to go see it. And I, I, yeah. I think that it's, if you go up to Fullerton, and the Fullerton Museum, it's located on, I think, Wilshire and Pomona or something. It's, that it's sounds about right. It's a couple blocks off yeah. of Harbor Boulevard, not too far from mm-hmm. the train station. and um, But it's, it's a small you know, intimate museum. You can yeah. do it really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's so many wonderful artifacts. And to hear this story of a local Orange County guy that really, mm-hmm. you know, made waves internationally and really changed the way yeah. rock and roll happened. Mm-hmm. You know, you couldn't have, rock and roll would not be the same without Leo Fender. And you really owe it to yourself to get up there and see some of those rudimentary early instruments that he created mm-hmm. and go through the process that you're talking about of this really interesting man. And so, yeah, the, so Leo Fender, you know, Orange County music and guitars start here, but you've you've worked on another project. I want to talk about this, and I'm talking with Jim Washburn here on Vintage Orange KUCI. And Jim, you've written uh, not about just about this, but you've also written about another great American classic guitar company, the Martin Guitar Company. And yep. you have a new project you're coming coming out with. Tell me a little bit about Martin Guitars. Okay. Um, well, the book is called the, the Martin Archives, a scrapbook of treasures from the world's foremost acoustic guitar maker. And it pretty much is. If you've seen um, the books around that have little pockets of Shotskis in them, of like little extra things, like there's one on Bob Dylan that has old concert program reproductions. Oh, yeah. And, and I saw one hand- like with Frank Sinatra that's like that. Yeah, handwritten lyrics things. and all that. Yeah. And this is a book like that, which it's a, a delve through Martin's incredible archives that span back to the, really the company's inception in 1833, a, a mere 105 years before Leo Fender started his company. And um, and just going through there and reproducing some old catalogs that they had, correspondence from people like Gene Autry back in the 30s and things, and just a whole bunch of their fascinating history. And in some ways, Martin was sort of what the West Coast was rebelling against in a way. Not necessarily, but and curiously, Leo Fender's, the first instrument guitar that he amplified was an old uh, old Martin that someone had taken into him that he put a pickup on and voila, amplified guitar. Um, the Martin story starts, you know, where, whereas California, all the guitar makers here, and they made instruments out of aluminum, out of Bakelite out here, all sorts of weird stuff going back into the early 20th century was sort of a result of being out on the West Coast where old world craftsmanship didn't much mean it hang. People mm-hmm. were kind of interested in getting as far away from Europe and the old world as they could out here. And they were busy building race cars and eventually fighter jets and everything else. It was a whole new world out here. Anyway, the old world got a bit of a, a comeuppance from the Martin Company in the 1800s where um, C.F. Martin III moved to the United States from Saxony, now part of Germany or whatever, uh, largely because it was so restrictive there. Mm -hmm. He made guitars and was considered one of the finest guitar makers in Europe, yet in the town that he lived in, Mark Neukirch and the Violin Makers Guild tried to to shut guitar making down, or at least denigrate it, where they said it was the the work of mere cabinet makers and it wasn't a genuine instrument and blah, blah, blah. So he pulled up sticks and moved to the New World here. And started off um, building guitars much like he had in Europe, but within 15 or 20 years had come up with a way of bracing an instrument called an X-brace. Like like ships, guitars kind of need to be braced to keep from flying apart with the various stresses and strains on them. In the guitar's case, largely from the pressure that the strings put on them. And the X-brace was very well suited to that. Um, people have come to guitar- call Martin the American guitar. 
uh, simply because he made a, a more durable instrument for a nation where durability was a really handy thing because we were such a large and always expanding nation. Mm-hmm. And people couldn't necessarily move with their pianos, but they could take a guitar along with them. So it was kind of, an, again, bringing a guitar from more of the, the cons- for the few to the many, you know, more mm-hmm. of it, like you said, a democratization yeah. <clears throat> of the instrument so that more people could yeah. be able to use a guitar and yeah. travel and, with it and use yeah. it. And initially, um, guitar strings were strung with gut strings, you know, poor animals. <laughs> and, um, <clears throat> and in the early 20th century, people started using steel strings more. Which, you know, were louder, more durable, you know, nicer to animals, I suppose. And, um, but those had problems where, again, they put a lot of strain on it. It turns out that the X-brace that C.F. Martin the first had developed, you know, back in the 1840s or whatever, was really well suited towards steel strings. And to the point where every other manufacturer eventually wound up copying them and kind of stealing the X-brace idea for their instruments. Uh, but meanwhile the audience changed for these instruments quite a bit. Guitars used to be either a very small kind of serious concert audience and a a small number of players noted for playing the classical repertoire on guitar, or that people just sort of treated as a as this light entertainment, you know, like they, a lot of old guitars are called parlor guitars because people would just play them. Well, this is what the w- lady folk will amuse themselves with in the parlor <laughs> while the men smoke cigars and talk important business sort of crap. And, um, and in the early 20th century, I think uh, the Martin Company was surprised and perhaps even a little appalled to find that their, their real market lay in guys in overalls, you know, going around singing country music and things. You know, where the Martin steel string guitars were just marvelously well suited to that, particularly as they began making larger and larger guitars. Uh, this year marks, I think, just about the 100th anniversary of the Dreadnought guitar, so-called after, like, the huge naval warships of the time, because it was, like, the largest acoustic guitar extent at the time. Again, an attempt to make the instrument heard over the other band instruments at the time, and it just suited country musicians great, um, cowboy Cow- singing cowboys, another marvelous invention <laughs> of history. You know, Gene Ochi and these people would play like the top of the line Martins in their movies, which was a great advertising tool. And, and Martin had the sense to make as many instruments for different, you know, price ranges as they could. So a beginner might at least aspire to own one as well and eventually would. And that's sort of what made the company so so kind of like the Fender story I mean with the Martins this is again you have this starting much earlier Mm -hmm. but a company kind of mirroring their company's story is mirroring American history and I think that's what I love about your book and Mm -hmm. I think I I can't wait to be able to get my very Mm -hmm. own copy of it Um, because it's it's not only just the history of this company but Mm -hmm. you can trace it through these archives and like the artifacts that are in the book and Mm -hmm. that are pictured and you can see um, you see the evolution of American history and how this this isn't just a a, Mm -hmm. a story about one company this is a story about the history of American music and that's Mm -hmm. why it's so wonderful that we have this archive and that the Martin Company has worked with you to preserve it and share it, and mm-hmm. um, because it's really it's it's not only a great read, but it's it's a beautiful book. It's really been well, thank you. well done and a great gift idea. I know, just in time for the holidays for yeah. any of those guitar lovers out there. Yeah, I I love history and finding things and all this, and just having access to Martin's archives was fabulous because you kind of see history unfolding, and the things we take so much for granted now, you know. 
we shouldn't because you, you see this history of a company that was dealing with delivering guitars to people before the railroads were invented. Right. You know, when you're doing it by horse cart or by canal barge, you know, corresponding before typewriters were invented with these, you know, trying to cram as, and they were a pretty cheap little company too in its way. They, they would, they would be corresponding with their largest distributor in New York City via postcard. You know, a one-cent postcard and cramming as much information on it as they possibly could and things like that. And then eventually they're using typewriters and carbon paper. And at some point you say, oh, someone's invented paper clips because you'll see rusty paper clips suddenly yeah. appearing on their documents. So you're, the archives yeah. actually are telling you the story of just kind of how this country evolved and, yeah, and through they, the story of its music. They saved almost everything. You Which know. is great. I'm a hoarder yeah. too. I'd never yeah. throw anything away because you mm. never know. Mm-hmm. Right when it's going to be important yeah. and once junk now history. <laughs> exactly. Well, Jim Washburn, thank you so much for being with me. I, we could go on and on and on and on, of mm-hmm. course, and talk about this, but um, I I can't wait to get your book. And the title of it, it's closer to you. Uh, Tell me again. The Martin Archives, I think, or maybe it's the CF Martin Archives. Let's look at the site. Let's yeah. look at it. It might be the CF Martin Archives, but you can find it. They're pre-selling it on Amazon already. Other websites. It's put out by Hal Leonard, company that puts out all sorts of books, but. You want this one. You do. And I'll have the links on my website as well, uh, vintageorangekuci.org. So check that out. And thank you again for being with me. It's a delight. And I I always feel like we've just scratched the surface of what we want to talk about in this half hour. So I have to have you come back again. Oh, all right. This is where I make you say you'll come back again on okay, the air, I will. so I hold you to it. Okay, well, thank you, and thank you for joining me on KUCI 88.9 FM, Vintage Orange, and I'm going to do something really um, self-serving right now. I am a Chicago Cubs fan, Jim, mm. and you know today is sort of a big day for me, and so um, I'm going to take a side, and I'm going to go out with the special music, and um, hopefully this won't be like you know nails in a chalkboard to you, mm-hmm. but I'm going to play my, my Cubs fight song go cubbies tonight watch the world series cheer for a team it's a great american talk about history baseball's all about that and uh thanks again for being with me thanks for having me all right baseball season's underway well you better get ready